Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us proposes a favorite movie that they think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor has to make the case for their proposition with the help of a partner, while two of us play devil's advocate to check the validity of the proposition. This week, Jari pitched Rudy as a great example of how to tell a true life story. This 1993 film starring Sean Astin and Ned Beatty was directed by David Anspa from a screenplay by Angelo Pizzo, the creator of Hoosiers, and based on the life of Daniel Eugene Rudy Rudiger, a walk-on to the 1975 Notre Dame football team. Go Irish! Jari will be ably assisted in his task on the A-team by Kim. Valerie and Anne will be on the B-team. They're going to test the theory by evaluating it separately so that in the end we get a complete 360-degree view of the story principle of telling a true life story. Jari will start us off with the genre and a quick one-sentence summary each of the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Thanks, Leslie. Uh, So the genre, uh, the external genre is performance sports. Uh, The internal genre is status sentimental. In the beginning hook, Daniel Eugene Rudy Rudiker and his family are big Notre Dame football fans. And Rudy has the dream to play for them despite being too small, academically challenged, and from a working class background. The middle build, Rudy leaves his family, goes off to South Bend, only to be rejected for admission but finds Father Kavanaugh that helps Rudy enroll in Holy Cross Community College. While there, he also gets a job as a groundskeeper for Notre Dame through Fortune, the head groundskeeper. Through hard work and three rejections, Rudy gains admission to Notre Dame. Now he's eligible to play, so he's a walk-on, which means that he just literally walks on to practice. He gives it his all, and he makes the practice squad. The ending payoff, Rudy plays on the practice squad, and the coaches compliment him on his heart and hard work. But then Rudy gets frustrated because he's not able to dress for the final game of his senior year, and so he wants to quit. He then goes and runs into Fortune, who tells Rudy his story about quitting several years earlier and how he'll regret it if he does quit. Rudy then goes back to practice, and his teammates protest that he doesn't get to suit up, and the coach lets him. The final home game with 45 seconds to go, they allow Rudy to play and he ends up helping sack the quarterback and Notre Dame wins and they carry him off the field triumphantly. Perfect end to a perfect story, at least in my opinion. Excellent. So now would you tell us about why you think Rudy is a great example of telling a true life story? Yeah, sure. One thing about performance stories or true life stories is typically they're great ways for people to get inspired to try harder. And even if they're a bit of an underdog, they have hope that through hard work and determination, they can get to where they need to be. And so people choose performance stories to experience the rewards of great effort and the triumph of expressing extraordinary gifts without really having to make the effort themselves. The best performance stories are those that are based on real people, since it makes our experience both reading and watching them even more special. 
And the reason is simple. If we see ourselves in the character based on real people in real situations, that means, hey, we may have a shot to do the same thing. The challenge with real true life performance stories is that most of the time they don't neatly fit into the obligatory scenes and conventions of the genre. That's why, like in adaptation, which we talked about in a previous episode, you know, the writer needs to embellish a little bit to give the reader viewer what they want, an emotional roller coaster that hopefully ends in victory. Not only does the writer have to provide some tension, she needs to set up the world in which it's clear that the protagonist has to rise above not only athletic performance, but a subtext of being an underdog. Uh, It's not enough for a privileged athlete to be successful. That athlete has to overcome something else, and preferably that's class. Basically, poor guy or gal makes it big. In my opinion, this is really where Rudy shines through, even though it's not 100% accurate, which we'll get to in a second. The obligatory scenes and conventions of a performance, sports, external genre story, we'll go through real quickly. Um, We'll have more detail in the show notes. But the way that all of these are framed is that there is a protagonist underdog that you feel something for. And the way the writer has to set this up is that there has to be essentially overwhelming odds that this person overcame. With Rudy, it's set up beautifully because not only is Rudy small, not very athletically prowessed, but his family works in a steel mill and no one believes in him. No one can actually fathom that he could actually go play for Notre Dame. So there's an inciting incident, performance opportunity, um, which is later on in the story. Well, Rudy gets into Notre Dame. He then sidesteps his responsibility. As we mentioned, he quits before the last game because he's frustrated because he can't suit up. In the beginning, the protagonist needs to lash out against the situation he's in. He leaves his job. He leaves his family. He leaves his fiance. He goes to South Bend and he like shows up at the gate and says, I want to get into Notre Dame. And they're like, well, did you did you apply? There's also has to be an, an antagonist. And in this case, Frank is his brother who literally every step of the way just says, you're not good enough. This is crazy. Why don't you take responsibility? The other thing is, is that Rudy gets on the team but still can't prove to his brother that he's actually on the team because since he's on the practice squad, he doesn't get to be on the roster, doesn't get to suit up. So his initial strategy to get on, he got on, but now still no one believes him. There's always an all is lost moment. And that's the point where Rudy quits and he must decide whether or not to go back. And then Fortune gives his speech, which is one of the most famous speeches in sports uh, movies. There's the big event. Obviously, that's the big game. And since he shows his dedication and hard work, he gets rewarded. He gets carried off the field. When it comes to the conventions, sometimes in these performance stories based on true life, you kind of don't have everything that you need. And one of those conventions is you need a strong mentor figure. And in this case, it's Fortune, the groundskeeper. There's also has to be training scenes. And you you get a lot of them in this where you just see Rudy getting beat up and training hard. There's obviously the all is lost moment. In this case, it's the last game. Hey, he's worked hard for two years and he's not suiting up. This is not what he wanted. The mentor has to recover some moral compass. So in this case, Fortune tells Rudy his story and this inspires Rudy to not quit. And then there is a big power divide between the antagonist and the protagonist. And in this case, it's Frank, his older brother and Rudy. Frank's the good son. Frank stays at the steel mill. Frank's going to be a supervisor. His dad even says, we're Rudigers. It's okay to be blue collar. And then there's the win, but lose, lose, but win ending. I mean, in this case, it's, it's sort of a win for Rudy, but I mean, he practiced for two years and only got to play one game. 
that's a pretty <laughs> abysmal performance. But for him, this is the hard work, determination, underdog story coming to life. And it's perfectly cast, obviously, at the end where they carry him off the field, which, which is wonderful. So like I said before, the problem with a lot of true life stories is that although some of them are stranger than fiction, some need help like Rudy. Uh, a lot of the scenes in Rudy didn't happen. The one uh, one that I think elicits the most emotion is the scene where all the players put down their jerseys in protest that Rudy doesn't get to play, and that never happened. But the writer, in this particular case, has to have some sort of tension or some way to show that the team believed in him. And the tradition, in fact, at Notre Dame is that the last game of your senior year most, if not all, seniors get to suit up and play at least a couple of seconds or even a minute. But there's no drama in that. The writer had to do something in order to show that Rudy deserved to play. Another thing that's important about these sort of underdog, real life, true life stories is the world that the protagonist, in this case, Rudy, comes from needs to be properly set up. And you know, it's a hard life working in a steel mill. and That just sets up the hole that Rudy needs to dig himself out of. Now, if I recall, the town wasn't really a steel mill. It was an oil town. So, I mean, those details don't matter. I think the, the more important detail that is true to life is that the Rudiger family was a blue collar. And even before you get to the steel mill is the opening scene of Rudy where, as a kid, they're playing football. And Rudy's enthusiastic, but his brother Frank is like, Rudy, you're too small to play anything else than full-time center, which if any of you have ever played football in the backyard with your buddies, you're just the person that gets pushed around. So that sets up how much he's going to have to come up with. Now, Frank, Rudy's older brother, doesn't exist. He is not a real person. Rudy did have 12 siblings. None of them were named Frank. So the writer had to invent a big brother as sort of the human symbol of all the people who discourage Rudy. And so as a writer, I think you need to take all that clear negativity that you know you can talk about with lots of other people and make composite characters. Um, so since I'm a big brother, you know, I can tell you I used to do the same thing with my two younger brothers. So uh, apologize for that, Paul and Mike, for for being at times a bad big brother. But that's the perfect thing we can all relate to. And that I think is really important to get right. Uh, even though it may not be 100% true, we can feel that. And there's other ways that this has happened as well. This discouragement, setting up Rudy as the underdog, even for people that should be encouraging, like in the one scene with Father Ted. Where are you going? I'm going to see Notre Dame. Do you have some friends in the South Bend? No. Well, then there must be some other reason. When you read the announcement in class, I thought you said anybody could go. I'm sorry, Rudy. This bus is for students who are interested in attending the university. It's not a sightseeing tour. Well, maybe someday I could go to school there. Rudy, you don't have the grades for Joliet Community, much less Notre Dame. The secret to happiness in this life is to be grateful for the gifts the good Lord has bestowed upon us. Not everyone is meant to go to college. Maybe that happened. Maybe that didn't. 
That's a powerful setup for what's to come that, oh, I am now going to have not only overcome my athletic inadequacies, but also my academic inadequacies. These are really short and sweet. I mean, this could have drawn out for a longer time, but the way the writer takes what most likely happened in true life and pulls it in and makes a really tight scene of yet another discouragement is really powerful. From this scene, it pushes four years forward where you see Rudy working at a mill and he's still... He still has a dream of playing at Notre Dame and on his birthday, the one person that believes in him, um, his friend Pete that he works at the mill with, gives him a Notre Dame jacket, which you'll see throughout the whole movie. And he gives Rudy some hope. And then Pete says, you're what my father always said. Having dreams is what makes life tolerable. Did he say that? Is Pete real? I don't know, but all of us can agree that we've heard things like that from other people. So this is a challenge for him to get out of this hole to fulfill his dream, which is a big audacious dream. The thing that also happens that happens quickly and complicates the story a little bit is that Pete ends up dying. And so the one person that believed in him is now gone and is told in the story kind of in passing, but some of some of the reason why Pete died is because Rudy didn't perform at his job. And this is the point of no return for Rudy. He's either got to go live his dream or not. And then he decides, hey, I'm going to go do that. Then, of course, we have to have the one more discouraging thing from his father. Chasing a stupid dream causes nothing but you and everyone around you heartache. Notre Dame is for rich kids, smart kids, great athletes. It's not for us. You're a Rudiger. There's nothing in the world wrong with being a Rudiger. You can have a damn nice life. Frank is going to take over plan number two in a couple of years. You make more than me and Johnny. You know he's in charge of the expansion program. I don't want to be Frank or John. Who knows if the father really said this, but whatever these true life events happen, that they get distilled down into things that, one, move the story forward, and two, resonate with us in our heart. Then Rudy goes off to South Bend. He then finds another friend, D-Bob, who is uh, played by John Favreau. And um, there's now going to be mentors that are not only helping him, but also hindering him. And this is when he meets Fortune. And Fortune, again, is someone that didn't exist. It is a compilation character of all the people that were trying to help him or hinder him or give him advice. It's important that even though fortune didn't exist, what fortune represents is a very powerful cautionary tale of what happens when you quit. When Rudy comes and, and talks to fortune, it's the whole point of the whole story. I wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad to prove to everyone prove that I worked. what? That I was somebody. Oh, you are so full of crap. You're five feet nothing, a hundred and nothing. And you got hardly a speck of athletic ability. And you hung in with the best college football team in the land for two years. And you're also going to walk out of here with a degree from the University of Notre Dame. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And after what you've gone through, if you haven't done that by now, it ain't going to never happen. I rode the bench for two years. Thought I wasn't being played because of my color. I got filled up with a lot of attitude. So I quit. Still not a week goes by, I don't regret it. And I guarantee a week won't go by in your life, you won't regret walking out, letting them get the best of you. 
Do you hear me clear enough? Again, in real life, Fortune didn't exist. He's made up. But he drives the message home. How else are you going to do that? The, the uniform scene is another one where how are you going to prove the point that he worked hard, he deserves it? The only way to do that is for his teammates to say how hard he worked. Then we get to the, to the best part, which is the ending, like the big performance scene, the big game. Did it all happen the way it happened? No, it didn't. But the most familiar aspects of it or the aspects of it that did, that did matter really end the story home. So that's why I think it's the perfect end to the perfect true life story, even though it's not perfectly accurate it resonates with us. And I mean, I know every time I watch it, so why it's one of my favorite movies, I get choked up because I just hear all the coaches in my head saying, you're not strong enough. You're not good enough. And I just want to prove them wrong. Like Rudy proved them wrong. So clearly the filmmakers took some liberties with Rudy's story to solidify that arc and make it more visually dramatic for the audience. But for all that they changed, you know, there is still so much that's true that really helps set up a beginning hook, middle build ending payoff. Rudy really did take a four-year break between high school and attempting to gain admission to Notre Dame. It was a couple years on a Navy boat and a couple years in a different job, but that did happen. So there really was that, that time lag. Rudy met Pete, his friend, at his second job. So Pete wasn't a childhood friend, but he really did die in a workplace accident, which really is what prompted Rudy to finally make a run for his dream. While at Holy Cross, Rudy really did find out that he is dyslexic, and that was a huge part of his academic struggles. And I really wish this part had been more prominent in the film, rather than kind of just tossed in as a reference, because I think that would have been really rewarding and satisfying to see how he actively overcomes that aspect. And then, of course, you know, he does walk on, he does make the practice squad, he does stay with them for two years. And when he does get to play in the game, he did have a sack and take out the quarterback and was really carried off the field. So when Jari proposed this story as a great example of an adapted true story, it made me think of another adapted true story that we did in season two, Hidden Figures, which was also a performance story. Now, Hidden Figures, it's a story that works. It's hugely satisfying um, and had great success in terms of, you know, the box office, critical acclaim, and most importantly, really helped champion the truth of the underrepresented who made such important contributions, not only to the space program, but to progress for women and people of color. So I wanted to take a look at that film to see what aspects the filmmakers changed or kept intact and how that affects the storytelling and the structure. And then by comparison, what we can learn about Rudy and adapting true life stories. So here's what I found. There are composite and created characters in Hidden Figures. So Kevin Costner's character, Al Harrison, is based on three different characters at NASA Langley during Katherine Johnson's time at the research facility. The white-collar statistician Paul Stafford, who was portrayed by Jim Parsons, is a fictional character. That character was created to represent certain racist and sexist attitudes that existed during the 1950s. And Kirsten Dunst's character, the hard-nosed supervisor of Vivian Mitchell, she is a fictional character that was created to represent some of the unconscious bias and prejudice in the era and is, at best, a composite of some of the supervisors that were there at NASA Langley. There was also manipulation of the timeline and events. Dorothy Vaughn did become the first Black supervisor in 1948, but that was five years before Katherine Johnson started working there. So they had to change up the timeline to make those events kind of coincide in order to make them. And in the film, 
it's shown that Katherine Johnson's the one that has to run across the campus to find a bathroom that she's allowed to use, where in real life, it was actually Mary Jackson, who was portrayed by Janelle Monet, rather than Katherine Johnson's character. There were bathrooms that were available for them to use, but they were hard to find. They weren't in every building. There was a lot of people that were unhelpful and giggling about, haha, you can't find a bathroom. And, you know, it was very humiliating and very angry time to try to just go use the damn bathroom. So that definitely did happen. But in order to put it in the film, they changed which character it applied to. And then they exaggerated it a little bit more by putting it all the way across the campus. However, there were certain truths that were kept intact, and certainly these aren't the only ones, but ones that did stand out to me, that certainly Katherine Johnson was as talented at a young age as she is portrayed in film, and her father and mother did go to great lengths to get her the education that she needed um, in order so that those those things that were in her could be realized in their greatest capacity. And Dorothy Vaughn was the first Black supervisor, as well as the one that did take over the IBM machine. And... Mary Jackson really was NASA's first African-American female engineer, and she really did have to petition the city of Hampton to be able to attend graduate classes alongside her her white peers. And so she won and got her degree and was promoted to engineer in 1958. So those aspects of what they actually accomplished are true. And one additional one, which I think when we did Hidden Figures in season two, I thought this part was just made up for the film. So I was so delighted to come across this little tidbit that says that this part of the film was actually accurate. In this Q&A, it says, did John Glenn really ask Catherine to double check the electronic computer's calculations for his first Earth orbit? And it says in this article, which I have a link to in the show notes, that yes, fact-checking the Hidden Figures movie confirmed that John Glenn personally requested that Catherine recheck the electronic computer's calculation for his February 1962 flight aboard the Mercury Atlas VI. So in the scene in the movie unfolded in almost exactly the same way as it does in real life with Glenn's request for Catherine taken nearly verbatim from the transcript. He even refers to as the girl. Get the girl to check the numbers. If she says the numbers are good, I'm ready to go. So I thought that was kind of cool because I I had thought that maybe that was kind of manufactured to create this final performance. Um, but what it, what they did was that they strategically structured that to be the final performance. And it really did happen. So the takeaway from all of this is that yes, things can and should be changed in order to adapt true life events into a story, you know, including certain omissions, composite characters, maybe some created characters that represent, you know, a larger aspect of the society or the theme. There will be timeline conflations, maybe restructuring the events to create that story form looking at here's what happened how can we then make sure that the events of the story that we're telling line up with the hero's journey the virgin's promise the kubler ross change cycle the five commandments of storytelling so certainly the degree to which this occurs will be based on the medium you know film versus a book versus you know whatever along with the expectation of the reality by the audience you know is this a memoir is this a biography or a documentary or is this a novel or is this a novel that's been adapted into a screen play, et cetera, et cetera. But if you have a story that you want to resonate with an audience, you know, how you portray and structure the characters and the events, it's it's essential, even if it means making some sacrifices with regard to complete accuracy. There was a quote from the author of Hidden Figures, Margot Lee Shutterly, in December of 2016. She said, for better or worse, there is history, 
There is the book, and then there's the movie. Timelines had to be conflated, and there were composite characters. So she recognizes kind of the nature of the beast, and I think also really the point of if you're going to tell a story like this, take a look at the for better or worse, what do we got to do in order to get the story out there? Excellent. Thank you. Now, let's test the proposition that Jari and Kim have put forward. Valerie, would you like to start us off? Okay. So Jari's proposing, as we said, that Rudy is a great example of how to tell a true life story. He's clearly outlined that the film is an excellent example of the performance genre, so I've got no problem there at all. Now, in saying that, it doesn't innovate anything, it's filled with cliche characters and scenes, and it's entirely predictable, but yes, it is definitely a performance story, and it's found an audience. Boy, are you going to make some enemies there, Did, did you go to Michigan? I mean, I'm wondering about that. Okay, sorry. You know what? I... I'm a big girl. I can handle that. <laughs> All the Michigan fans will love you. I could care less. Now, the, here's something that's interesting. Jari's idea that the performance genre is an ideal way to frame a memoir, I find really interesting. And I'd kind of like to see us study that a little bit further. So, Jari, if you want to go ahead and study that and let us know what you find out. <laughs> I can't wait to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Challenge all right, accepted. All right. So now in saying all that, I'm not sure that I agree that this is a great example of how to tell a true life story. Now, honestly, I'd never heard of Rudy Rudiger or this movie. So I had to do a bit of research. I think it's safe to say that this is a memoir because it was Rudiger himself who sought this out. Nobody was going after him begging to tell his story. The filmmakers weren't interested at first, but Rudy, it seems, is a very good salesman, and he did convince studio executives that this is something that had to be made. He wanted to make money from his story, and in fact, he continues to milk his story. His uh, 15 seconds of fame, he's really, really milking that one. But when it comes to memoir or biographies or any story that's inspired by true events, as Kim was saying, and audiences understand that there is going to be some interpretation. We know that the characters are not saying exactly what was said at the time because no one can really remember that. And we know that the story represents only one aspect of a character's life, and it's not going to include every minute from birth to death, nor should it. For example, in Rudy, we're focused only on Rudy's uh, dream of making it into the team of Notre Dame, and that's fine. But interpretation and fabrication are two entirely different things. And so this is where I start to have a few problems with the movie. Yeah, there are well-documented errors, omissions, and half-truths, and we've already talked about a number of those. The opening credits say that Rudy is based on a true story. Now, I would argue that it's very loosely based on the truth and that it's a far cry from being an excellent example of how to tell a true life story. It doesn't matter to me that the storytellers neglected to tell us that Rudiger was also on the boxing team because really that has nothing to do with his goal of being on the football team. And I can even forgive the fact that Rudy doesn't have an older brother and so Frank doesn't exist. But when fake obstacles have been created for Rudy to overcome and the core event and the events leading up to the core event are fabricated in a performance story, that's when I kind of have a problem. Because I, I can't believe that what we're really proposing is that the best way to tell a true life story is to make shit up. So let's just start with the false obstacles. In the movie, Rudy is broke. He has to work to get by. He has no money for a proper room and so on. But in reality, 
his tuition for both Holy Cross and Notre Dame was covered by the GI Bill. So if the story is really worth being told, the writers shouldn't have had to create obstacles that have existed in reality, right? For example, Rudiker's dyslexia is a real obstacle and one that he overcame. And this was just passed off in a line or two of dialogue. The character just happens to befriend a tutor who not only helps him with classes, but who accurately diagnoses him. Dyslexia is a real obstacle to his goal. If, if Rudy can't make the grades, he doesn't get to attend the colleges. Therefore, he can't possibly be on the team because, of course, Holy Cross is a stepping stone to Notre Dame. If the filmmakers had focused on that, which, you know, I agree with Kim, this is, that's way more interesting uh, than financial problems anyway, they wouldn't have had to come up with the money problems. Of course, working at the field does introduce Rudy, the character, to Fortune, but Fortune is also fabricated. Fortune's an on-the-nose character who fulfills the mentor role in Rudy's hero's journey. He's a major character, and the fact that both he and Frank were creations makes me question whether Pete existed and whether F Father Todd existed. Now, Kim has just told us that they, at least Pete was real, but my point is that if you create one single composite character or one brand new character, that's kind of one thing. But when you fabricate two or more, it starts to call the whole story into question. The real problem with the characters, though, in my opinion anyway, is that two people were unduly vilified. Daniel Rudiker, who's Rudy's father, is portrayed as someone who is unsupportive, spidey, and even jealous of his son. Magically, when Rudy's accepted to Notre Dame, dad does a total 180. He brags about his son's accomplishment and proclaims when he walks into the football field that this is the most beautiful sight his eyes have ever seen. I found that one a bit hard to, you know, a bit of a tough pill to swallow. This is a man with, what, 13 children and a football field is the most beautiful sight he's ever seen? Not one of the faces of one of his 13 children? Although I'm speaking as a mother there, so, you know, <laughs> take that for what you will. The, the key takeaway here, though, is that Mr. Rudiger, in reality, was a really supportive dad. He was an encouraging father. Why vilify him? I don't know. I think that's a, I think that's a fatal flaw. I really do. Likewise, Coach Devine was an equally supportive character in the real Rudy's life. And it turns out that he had stated that everyone in that Georgia Tech game would play. So Rudy was going to be on the field without all the theatrics of the crowd chanting his name. He was going to be on the field anyway. There was no obstacle to that. Now, I'm not a football fan, and I'm not American, so I, I really didn't know this story. But I'm going to work from the premise that Rudy's accomplishment of making the team was extraordinary. So if that's the case, then I think the writers missed a couple of key opportunities. They could have played up the actual obstacles that Rudy faced and identified the real forces of antagonism rather than making them up. Why they did that, I don't know. I'm just guessing that this is the version that Rudy himself wanted told because this whole project is driven by Rudy, the, the real man. Okay, so now we come to the part of the story that gives me the most pause, and that is the events leading up to how Rudy got on the field. The whole core event of this story is questionable. Now, all 12 of the content genres have a core event, and this is the scene that the audience is waiting for. This is what they pay their money for. Every story must have one, and what it is will depend on the genre of the story that you're working in. And while Rudy, the film, absolutely does have a core event, this is Rudy's performance on the field, so many of the details and circumstances have been completely made up 
that it calls the whole thing into question. Yeah, it works from a, from a genre perspective, no question there. And it does satisfy because there's a huge following for this movie. But what we're trying to figure out here today is whether this film represents a good approach to memoir. And in my opinion, the core event has to be real. Every detail has to be as real as possible. There may have to be some slight variations, just like if it's a film just for production purposes or what have you. But this is not the place to exaggerate or to take poetic license. It really isn't. This is what the audience has paid their money for, and you got to deliver. If they paid for a true life story, then this scene has got to be true to life. Everyone involved acknowledges that the Jersey scene is a lie. It didn't happen. Coach Devine was not opposed to Rudy playing. He was as supportive of him as he was of other players and would have played him anyway. A small group of people did chant Rudy's name after Rudy took the field, but it wasn't anything like the film suggests. And Rudy was carried out of the stadium, but not because the team considered him to be a hero. The guys were just joking around. So I have to ask, if the core event has to be made up, is Rudy's story really all that special? If it is, why did they have to invent things? Why didn't they dramatize the real challenges that Rudy faced? That, to me, would have been the way to tell a real, a true life story. I think the... (laughs) One of the aspects of StoryGrid that we don't talk a lot about, but lately we've been talking a little more about, is the reality leaf of the five-leaf genre, Clover. And on that reality leaf, there are four sort of sub-reality genres. There's in sort of descending order of truth, you could say, and we're using these terms very broadly. You have factualism, then realism, then fantasy, and then absurdism, or maybe absurdism, then fantasy. And basically, we're going to talk about two of them here, realism and factualism. Factualism is the basis for stories that have to do with, you know, being drawn directly from history or or biography. And so we're kind of casting Rudy into this mold, or we're trying to. So factual stories take some part of the historical record. This is from Sean's book, The Story Grid, and imply that this story did happen. And this category can include everything from documentaries, providing that the documentary has some kind of story plot, but also dramatizations of big historical events or famous historical figures. Sean mentions 12 Years a Slave and Serpico as examples of factualism, but I'd also add Selma, which we reviewed on the show at the end of season two, and The Big Short, which was a really good factual type of dramatization of the housing bubble of 2007. So these are stories of real events of note in the world and have as their all of their principal characters actual people involved in the events with sometimes some of them compressed like two people into one or that type of thing, as we've mentioned. So there are other large biographical dramas like Lawrence of Arabia, Patton, and The Imitation Game it might all be good examples. And I'll get to why they're good examples in a sec. So after factualism, there's realism. And realism is just all the stories that are, that are stories. They're just made up, but they take place in a real world without, say, magic or spaceships or something. And I think there's some real gray areas in realism. So I just want to call out the fact that, for example, say a British detective series like Lewis, it's realistic in that it does take place, you know, in a real town and with no, you know, gravity works the same way it does. in the, It's realistic. But also there are four murders a week in the city of Oxford, which in reality is one of the safest places on earth. So 
you have these gradations, and that's what I want to just bring out here. Gradations from truth to complete fabrication, complete storytelling, right? Just complete making shit up. So the point that I want to make about Rudy is that it's mostly just realism. It's just kind of a made-up story. It seems to be mostly just made-up stuff, but it's masquerading as factualism because it has this germ of sort of some true things that happened. But if they had presented it to, say, Hollywood producers or studios as a purely fictional tale, it would never have been greenlit because it was just too fucking, excuse me, too syrupy, too sweet, too unbelievable. So they said, oh, it's based on a true story and that way it can pass muster. That That's factualism. It's a little slight fingernail hold on factualism seems to give it a license to exist as a really sentimental performance story. But its protagonist is insignificant on the world stage and he never really did anything great in the world. Not like General Patton or Abraham Lincoln or someone that you're making a biographical drama about. So he, it's based. It's not based on some hero's life. It's just based on basically one single accomplishment and not a very important one at that. So to me, this is exactly the problem that Charlie Kaufman faced when he wrote Adaptation, uh, which we analyzed back in episode three. There wasn't enough story in the nonfiction book that Kaufman had been hired to adapt to the screen, so he had to make a lot of stuff up. And what made Adaptation so great, if, if you liked that movie, was the, it was just a clever device of just admitting up front that he's making the whole movie up about how story isn't real life and characters aren't real people. And it be, and he placed it in the absurdist reality leaf. So I think for, for writers there, if you're working in the realm of memoir or historical reality, uh, factualism, there are three questions that you should ask. How historically important a figure is your subject? That is, what did they accomplish and what impact did they have on the world? How far back in history are they? Is it within living memory or is is it way back before anyone can really call you on the details? And how major a character is the real person in your story compared to your fictional characters? So, for example, maybe you're writing a historical fiction about a sailor in Napoleonic times and you might bring Lord Nelson in but you don't have, he's not your main character. So he's a real character from history, but you're still writing just a novel, just a story. So most of the works that we've mentioned in the factualism category involve either these towering figures within living memory, like Martin Luther King, George Patton, T.E. Lawrence, and Lawrence of Arabia, or else they involve lesser known people whose struggles or accomplishments were big and deserved to be lifted up and made part of history, like Katherine Johnson in Hidden Figures or Alan Turing in The Imitation Game or Solomon Northrup in 12 Years a Slave. And so if you take on a story like that, you're obligated to hew pretty closely to the facts, like the sequence, more or less the sequence of real events, the genuine traits of the character, uh, the struggles, their real antagonists or antagonistic forces, and the accomplishments that they achieved. So Rudy, you know, he's just this dude who never really did anything much on the stage of history. It's an everyman story of persistence. It didn't really change the world, but it's it's inspiring, but no more so than a purely fictional account of, say, you know, any other dogged working class person who makes the grade. So in order to make it work as a satisfying story, the writers had to be really loose with the facts, as I think, you know, Valerie, and we've all agreed to that. 
and this is not to put Rudy down or to knock people for being fond of it. It's sentimental. It's, it's a satisfying sports performance movie, but it's only to suggest that the license you can take with the facts is going to be a lot broader for an unknown person with minor accomplishments. And this could be yourself. For example, if you're writing your own memoir, I'm not saying your accomplishments are minor, but just that on the world stage, they're probably, most of us have fairly minor accomplishments. But if you're going to tell a story like that, and you have to invent most of it or much of it, then you better do what Valerie says and make sure that the story is structurally sound, that you innovate on conventions and that you keep the story tight. Basically, make it work as a purely fictional story and present it more as realism and less as factualism. Oh, th- thanks, Anne and Valerie. That was some great analysis. Um, it's really interesting to me that this has come up you know, in the context of other stories and not just ones that deal with historical events or historical people. And we do have, of course, Selma, as Anne mentioned, but also The Hurt Locker, which received some criticism about the accuracy of what it was portraying because it was portraying events that could happen. Now, in in the context of Selma, Ava DuVernay was criticized for the way that LBJ was portrayed. You know, was it accurate? It's hard to say. I mean, I think there are reasonable minds could differ, as I frequently say. But it's a well-crafted story that shares the deeper truth and meaning of what happened during the times portrayed. So the events in Selma are historical events, but no one called it a documentary. So I mentioned when we discussed The Hurt Locker that there had been criticism, as I said, on the basis that it wasn't realistic, that it didn't, and and that it portrayed these professionals in a bad light. Um, and I compared it at the time with Tom Clancy's novels, which are generally praised for accuracy and precision. Now, and again, in that context of that discussion, I repeated Anne's wonderful clarity inducing statement about how stories are not real life, characters are not real people. So some of what is historically true or precisely accurate has to give way to telling the story, which is true even in a biopic. And it's important to understand where you want your story to fall on the reality continuum, to be intentional and consistent with the micro choices that support the macro choice, avoid doing harm, and be upfront about your choices. So I contrast Rudy with A Million Little Pieces, which was sold as a memoir, but contained facts that were not true and that cast people and institutions in a negative light. And in that way, it did didn't feel innocent. To me, the changes in Rudy feel more more appropriate. But part of that is really enjoying the film. So stories in general are a human pattern that we impose on life circumstances to convey information and meaning and help us make sense of and deal with a changing world that we can't control. So I would be really intentional about changing facts about real people or events, especially where it portrays them in a negative light. But I encourage you to tell the greater truth about life in your stories. People who disagree with your portrayal are free to write their own story. But here, the bigger human truth seems to be that a second-generation working-class kid can fulfill his dreams and go to college if he works hard and is persistent. And I think the best approach for the writer is to consider the goals and the truth they intend to communicate through the story and execute on that. 
I think that's wonderfully said, Leslie, as usual. As you were talking, it makes me think of the way I felt this last weekend. I was flying home from the StoryGrid Level Up get-together, and I watched the movie The Post on the plane, the film with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. And I, I haven't dug up into like the accuracy of exactly how the Pentagon Papers came to light and all that stuff, but there was one specific scene that I could tell while watching it was very fabricated specifically for the audience's benefit. When Catherine Graham, it's, you know, after they've announced the Supreme Court decision, or at least after they've completed that hearing and they haven't yet heard the announcement, but they're, you know, walking out and walking out of the courthouse and she doesn't, she decides that they're not going to stop and talk to any of the reporters. And she's like, I think we've said everything we have to say. And then she walks down the stairs through the crowd that kind of parts and lets her go through. And visually, the people that are standing there, the crowd transitions to being mostly, you know, almost solely women that are on either side of her as she's walking through. And, you know, they're all kind of looking on with, with admiration and like, oh, that's her, like she did this thing. And and it was a really poignant moment that totally, you know, came right at me when I'm watching it, where it became representative of what they wanted to do with the film and the theme and the impact of the story that they told about a, a woman in this time who had to make this decision kind of unprecedented um, in her life and in, in a lot of people's lives to go against what a room full of men, a majority were telling her to do, to do the right thing that she felt, you know, with conviction. And so I think that the power of that based on a true story is it does add that element of I could do that too. And it is that more powerful because it's not fiction. So it is really interesting to take that into consideration in a film such as, as Rudy and was it really best served by what they created versus something like Hidden Figures and how how are those different? And to really consider that when you go to write your own, um, whether it's you know historical portrayal or your own memoir or that kind of thing, no matter what the answer is, definitely write it and then figure out where to fall on that reality spectrum. Yeah, it was Mark Twain that said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I think that as writers, especially when we're writing something to inspire and entertain, we may need to embellish a little bit to keep things moving. The truths of life must be represented in our characters. And sometimes true life stories don't necessarily have that neat little package. Did Rudy, the film, was there outright lying? People have proven that things didn't happen. But as a story, the challenges that you know the working man or woman have to deal with uh, in order to rise above are very powerful. And that's the core of this story. And that speaks to a lot of us. And it gives us hope that through hard work, we can get ahead. I don't know. I guess I have to write a post about how to use a performance for a memoir. Has our analysis of Rudy helped you to better understand how to use real life to tell a great story? Have you analyzed a story like this before? If so, how did you handle it? Is there a novel or film that you think is an excellent example of real events portrayed in a fictional film? Let us know on Twitter at StoryGridRT. To wind up this episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from Lauren. Let's have a listen. I just want to know if in writing a memoir, can I 
pick, say, love and esteem need in the external genre and self-actualization and self-transcendence in the internal genre? Thanks, Lauren, for the question. Um, I'm actually writing a memoir right now and have had these similar thoughts for myself. The best post I've read about this is from certified StoryGrid editor, Rachel Ramirez. I'm going to start with her explanation of what a memoir is. In a memoir, you're actually telling two stories, the primary and the secondary, and that requires a choice of two genres. Each will feature you as the protagonist going through a change process that is aggravated and required by external events. Your primary story will almost always have an internal genre, and the secondary story will almost always be an external genre. Well, why is that? Because your memoir goes deep into your head and personal internal experiences. Readers expect a memoir to be primarily focused on your internal journey, but the internal journey takes place in the context of external events. So you're telling both an external story, what happens, an internal story, its impact on you. So from that, for a memoir, you need to pick an external plus an internal genre. In your case, it looks like you want to pick two external genres, love plus performance society status, and two internal genres, a worldview and a morality. So, you know, as we've previously said on podcasts, uh, we don't recommend having multiple genres since a mashup is really hard to, to pull off. That doesn't mean that you might not have some elements of that, like in Song of the Sea or Rocky. Uh, so my advice would be just to pick one, pick the primary one for both the internal and the external and see where it comes out. That way, at least you have a consistent way to tell the story. And as, as you go through it, you may be like, hey, I got to add some more stuff to move it along. But pick one internal and one external and see how it goes. Thanks, Jerry. And thanks, Lauren, for your question. If you have a question about how to apply true life events in your story or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Or better still, stop by storygrid.com slash resources and click on the Editor Roundtable podcast where you can leave us a voice message. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Rudy. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to incorporate true life events into your own stories. You can find the links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you're interested in hiring a StoryGrid certified editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time to find out whether I can make the case that the 1939 adaptation of The Wizard of Oz is an example of the use of metaphors and symbolism within a great story. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Boy, that was a journey. Thank you. <laughs> 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 <sighs>